Let's try that again. Good morning. Uh, yeah, wow. That's a good good morning. Normally it's a little, little, little less quiet. So we've got some happy people today. Good. Do, is uh, the, the basketball game on today? Tomorrow. Okay, I was thinking maybe people are all giddy because, uh, well, we'll talk about that when we get into First John. It'll be very important. Um, <laughs> So uh, we are a little bit more than halfway through our series in the book of 1 John. 1 John, if you're just joining us, is actually a letter, a letter that a leader in the early church by the name of John writes to churches in the region of Asia Minor. He's writing, um, his tone sounds as if he's a loving father writing to children whom he loves. And in that kind of tone and care and compassion, we're getting a glimpse into see how God as our heavenly father loves us as his people. Now, today is going to be difficult, uh, and depending upon how honest you are with yourself and how honest you allow yourself to be with yourself, today can be scary, terrifyingly scary. Uh, The Bible, Jesus, and John in today's text um, are going to talk about this thing, this theme that comes up again and again in Scripture. And it's this idea and theme that human beings have great propensity and the potential to do great evil. And this potential, this propensity is not just in a few of us, it's in all of us. You, me, we all have potential to commit commit incredible evil. And the Bible seems to link up Uh, these two concepts, love and hate, and attached to the concept of hate is this idea that when you hate or have anger in your heart against another human being, it's as if you are murdering them. In the strongest sense, and in 1 John, you'll hear a statement that says, if you hate a brother, you are a murderer. And immediately, um, if you're like me, you kind of think that that's exaggerated Language. It's used for a rhetorical device that, yeah, it's bad, but we're really not murderers. And what we're going to look at today is really trying to discover what exactly is the Bible communicating and warning us when it talks about this idea that all human beings have the potential to be murderers. And it starts with hate, anger, bitterness, resentment in your heart. And again, depending upon how honest you can be with yourself, it can be terrifying to where we're going to go today. There is potential for great evil in all of us, every last one. So let's dig right in. First John chapter 3, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who is of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. So again, here is this kind of string that's woven all throughout Scripture, this idea that we need to love people and that when we don't love, we're choosing to hate and have anger, and that has the potential to lead to greater things like murder. And in order to begin this illustration, John starts with the story of Cain and Abel, and it's a story that appears in the very first book of the Bible, the very few first few pages of the Bible, most people have a familiarity with it if you grew up in the church, but even if not, the story is talked about a lot. So there's at least uh, a cultural familiarity with this text. But I want to go back to it for this reason. Um, Many times when we read the Bible, we are looking for answers to questions that the Bible is not asking. And so a lot of times when people read the story of Cain and Abel, they're trying to figure out something. They're trying to answer a question that the Bible is actually not asking. And all the while, the, the, the thing that it is trying to say is just there floating on the surface and easily grabbed, but we're too busy trying to find answers to things the text isn't concerned about. So let's, let's, let's dig in. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore, uh, bore Cain. Saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain, a worker of the ground. Now, interesting note uh, the name Abel is a Hebrew word, chevel. And if you remember back at the beginning of the year, we did a series in which we talked about the book of Ecclesiastes. And in the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, there's a very popular verse, it's, it's, it's said a lot at funerals. 
but it says, vanity of vanities, all is vanities. Depending upon your Bible translation, sometimes it says, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. Where the word for vanity and meaningless there is hevel. And hevel doesn't mean vanity, it doesn't mean uh, meaningless. Hevel means vapor. It means that which is here today and gone tomorrow. Hevel is this idea that the thing you see that you want to grab a hold of is there for a moment and it's fleeting and before you even can reach out and grab it, it's gone. Picture a sunset. You ever watch a beautiful sunset at the beach? Uh, Maybe with someone you're you're, you started dating, you're romantically involved, and everything is just right. Your stomach's turning, you got like butterflies, and you reached out and you held, held, held her hand for the first time. And like everything is perfect. The sun is setting, and you just wish that moment would last. But in like the blink of an eye, even though it's technically several minutes you've been watching, the sun sets and it's gone. It's here today, it's gone tomorrow. Hevel is like your breath on a cold day. Picture a, a little kid who discovers the concept that when it's cold, you can go, and there's like magical fog that comes out of your mouth. What the little kids try to do is they try to grab it. But before they can grab a hold of that, it's gone. That's Hevel. In this story, Adam and Eve have two sons, and they name one Abel, Hevel. And it's this sort of prophetic way of infusing this story with meaning. Eve loves her son, like all moms do. She loves Abel, but he's going to be here today and gone tomorrow. Like a sunset, you want to capture that love in that moment forever. But before you realize it, it'll be gone. The other interesting note is this is the first time a human being calls upon the name of the Lord with his Hebrew covenantal name, Yahweh. It's the holy, sacred name found all throughout the Old Testament. But what's interesting to note is that the first time a human being does this in Scripture, it's done by a woman praising God for provision. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of the fat portions. And the the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. Now, if you again have been brought up in church, you've heard like several interpretations on why God liked Abel and his offering and rejected Cain and his offering. Some people have said things like, uh, it's because uh, Abel brought, it says, the firstborn of the flock. So Abel bought like the best sacrifice to the Lord. And it doesn't say the best of the fruit of the ground for Cain. So Cain should have brought the Lord the best fruit from the ground. Like he should have brought like the pineapples, the kiwis, the watermelons, the good stuff. But instead he brought like Brussels sprouts and beets. And God was just like, you, you, don't, you don't get this. You're not offering your best. Some old Brussels sprouts. Some people would say uh, it's because uh, Cain brought a blood sacrifice. He brought an animal, I mean, Abel, and Cain brought, bought just some, some, some fruit of the ground, fruits and veggies or whatever. Uh, some people say it has something to do with the attitude of the sacrifice being made. And, and here's the truth. Uh, the text doesn't say. I don't know the right answer. The book of Hebrews later in the New Testament will say it has to do something with um, the faith of Abel. But this text, in this passage is not asking those questions. It doesn't care about that. It's trying to get you to see something. And there's a number of things it's trying to get you to see, but it's not trying to get you to figure out the like inner psychological dynamics of Cain's sacrifice. What it is showing you, though, among many things, is that man, at his most basic and fundamental level, And I say that because this is before high culture, high society develops. There's no institutional power, so there's no such thing as like institutional evil or oppression or anything like that that can exist at this point. We're at the very beginning. Man at his most basic, most fundamental core, he again and again will turn brothers into enemies. And when brothers are turned into enemies, hate and evil and resentment in the human heart can quickly turn to murder. And the story of Genesis is how sin spirals out of control within a, within a couple pages. 
Human beings turn brothers into enemies, and then we kill each other. This is not just the story of Cain and Abel. It is the story of Cain and Abel, but it's the story of humanity. History has shown again and again and again, we turn brothers into enemies, and then we kill each other. And this is the sin spiraling out of control in the book of Genesis. The text goes on. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said to him, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. So Cain kills his brother, and he asks this question like, am I my brother's keeper? And the Bible wants you to answer back, yes, yes. But he just kind of like, am I my brother's keeper? No, no, no. No, the Bible wants you to say, yes, of course you are your brother's keeper. And there's this interesting phrase, the, the last sentence here. The last, the last line, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. The word blood here in the Hebrew, damim, it's, it's, it's in the plural. And most likely it's in the plural, bloods, because uh, there is a, an ancient Jewish idea that says when you kill another human being, you are not just killing them, but you are killing all their future descendants. You are cutting off that line. You're not just killing that individual. The potential for that person to create families that create families that create families is now cut off. And the book of Genesis is like really concerned with lines and genealogical lines. It's everyone's favorite part of the Old Testament, especially the book of Genesis. It's like every few chapters, there's a chapter of genealogical record. So-and-so begat so-and-so. So-and-so begat... Mahusafat, Mahusafat begat, I just made that name up, but how many of you knew that? <laughs> I just go, you know, Masala, and he begat so-and-so. You just sneak in one name that you know every now, like Methuselah. Abel is killed, and the blood is in the ground, and it's crying out for justice. It's there. It's on the pages of Genesis. There is this injustice, and, and it's crying out from the ground. The story of Cain and Abel is also about the story of the innocent brother, the innocent brother, the innocent son who makes an acceptable sacrifice before God and in turn is murdered and his blood is spilt and now crying out for justice. This is the backdrop that John uses to illustrate his next several points. Again, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who is of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of life into death because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Now this is the first step of it beginning, be, becoming really scary, becoming terrifying if you're honest with yourself. John binds together this idea of anger and hate, resentment towards a, a, a brother, another human being. He equates that with murder. Now, if you're like me, again, you probably consider yourself like, like most every other American. Like, you're not that bad of a person. And you go, look, like, I know I've disliked some people and stuff like that, but I'm never going to go kill someone. I'm not a murderer. I'm not like that. I'm not that bad. I'm not that evil. So clearly, Jesus, the Bible, John, when they talk like this, when they equate murder with hate, they're doing that for rhetorical purposes. They're doing that for exaggerated language. They're doing that to prove a point that it's really bad and you shouldn't do it, but they don't actually mean they're the same thing. 
Now, yes, I agree with that. Anger and hate is not the exact same thing as murder. And some of you are going, yeah, I, I, I know that because like, there's some people that I dislike and I hate and I gossip and I slander, but I would never kill them. I never kill them. So it's not the exact same thing, but the scriptures want you to see something. The same seed of anger and hatred that gets planted into the soil of your heart is the same seed that has potential to turn into the tree or the plant that will murder, that will kill. The same thing, it's the same plant, it's the same tree, the same seed that gets put in the human heart that hates and has unforgiveness and resentment. That thing, with the right watering, with the right soil and cultivation, can grow into the tree that can murder. Now here's the thing. Uh, we grow up in a culture and society where that tree will rarely develop. It's rarely going to develop. We have things in our culture that kill that seed, that plant, from becoming full-on murder. So most of us are never going to be angry at someone and it's going to turn into to murdering them. Be, be, so, so we kind of pride ourselves like, yeah, I'm not that bad. I'm a mor morally virtuous person. I'm never going to go out and murder somebody. But you need to understand some things. You live in a particular context, and in your particular context, good behavior is rewarded and bad behavior is punished. It is advantageous for you to have good behavior in our culture. We live in a, in a good enough country where good people are, for the most part, rewarded for good behavior and bad behavior is punished. So it is advantageous for you not to let that seed grow up into the tree of murder. The other thing we don't have is a scarcity of resources. So we, have, we all have access to clean drinking water. If there was a limited supply of water, you'd be surprised what types of things you would do to get to that water. So again, we may pride ourselves on being morally upright and virtuous, but we live in a particular context that rewards good behavior and punishes bad behavior. And then on top of that, there's not true scarcity of resources. We have enough food and water and shelter to go around. Now, if you were to take the same person and put them into a context where maybe evil is, uh, good behavior is not rewarded, or even worse, what about when evil behavior, bad behavior, is rewarded? You throw in scarcity of resources, not enough food, not enough water, not enough to go around, and you'd be surprised what human beings are able to do. Okay. Really scary stuff now. One of the most shocking things for the modern mind to grapple with, to wrestle with, is what took place in the last hundred years of modernity of modern, the modern era, um, probably reaching high points in World War I and then especially World War II. I mean, uh, the modern mind had a very difficult time grappling with this idea that human beings were capable of committing the incredible evil that took place in that World War II period. And I'm talking about all of the different types of evils committed by, 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 by many people in many different cultural contexts, several different countries. But in particular, um, to get right to the point, we'll, we'll use Nazi Germany and Soviet Russia, communist Russia. The modern mind could not grapple with the fact, and we had media at least, so you saw pictures of this stuff, the fact that incredible atrocities were killed. Human beings killing other human beings, human beings starving children, human beings experimenting on pregnant women, human beings shooting fathers dead in front of their family members. And I can't even get into it. Uh, every so often I'll obsess about human suffering. I, I, it's a constant wrestling I have. And I'll read, and I'll read a, a bunch of books and the stuff human beings are able to do to other human beings is just you can't get your mind around it. People starving children for fun. It, 
and, and the modern mindset. How could this have taken place? Especially because it happened in, in modern Western countries, highly educated, developed Western civilization. These were the people who participated in this stuff. And, and this is the terrifying thing. If you go out and try to look for the faces of the monsters that did these crimes, you will not find the face of monsters. You will find faces that look like yours and look like mine. You will find family men. You will find religious men. You will find irreligious men. You will find normal people, family men, committing the most horrible, evil acts imaginable. When you go out, you're not going to find monsters. You're going to find human beings that look a lot like you and me. Now, one of the things we like to tell ourselves is that we would be different if put into one of those contexts. How could those people do those things? How could those people participate in those crimes? Or how could, how could the Christians in Germany just turn to, to give a blind eye to that? Because even if you didn't participate in it, you still pretended like it wasn't happening. How could they do that? I wouldn't be like that. I, I am different. I am special. I am more mor morally virtuous and upright than those, those evil men and women. But the crazy thing is, is when these types of things occur, when genocide occurs, it is not just like the government with 1% of the population, like there's 500 evil bad guys that executed these crimes. When you look into genocide, it's whole people groups and cultures either participating or buying in or pretending like it didn't happen. So in 1994, there was a, a genocide in Rwanda. There's two people groups, the Hutus and the Tutsis, and they are more genetically similar to each other than anyone else in the world. They're brothers who turned each other into enemies. And in 100 days, one group, the Hutus, murdered a million Tutsis. 100 days, they killed a million people. It wasn't done by a few select government officials. The haunting thing about the genocide was that it was done by normal people and these normal people took up arms and weapons and killed their neighbors. People who you lived next to for decades, you took up a machete and chopped the limbs off of another human being and you knew him. For decades they were their neighbors. Children were killed, women were horrifically treated and a million people in a hundred days. It wasn't done by a few select corrupt individuals. It was done by the masses. And when you look at the face of these monsters, you'll find faces that look like you and they look like me. We, however, again, will tell ourselves, I'm different. I'm special. I would be the good guy. We'll talk a little bit more about it in a bit, but uh, one of the heroes of the World War II era is a pastor theologian named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was one of the, the pastors who stood up against Hitler and was a part of the resistance. He was a part of the confessing church that stuck, took a stand against the state. Um, and everyone likes to think that like, oh yeah, I'd be like Bonhoeffer. I'd be like Bonhoeffer. There's tons of historical incidences and, and studies that illustrate the point, I'm gonna give you two that are highly controversial because even though these two studies, they're psychological tests, studies, experiments that were done, even though they're highly controversial, there's all kinds of debate um, about what they actually showed or proved, or they at least, even if only partially true, should terrify you, even if only partially true. The first is the Milgram experiment of 1961. And to, to illustrate a very con complex experiment, there's three key participants, an authority figure, and picture the authority figure in a white coat, like a lab coat, and that's literally true in this case. And then there's a teacher and a learner. And in between the teacher and a learner, there's a wall. So the teacher cannot see the learner, and the learner cannot see the teacher. The learner on one end is strapped up to a, vice, a device that can shock them. On the other end is the teacher, and if they press a button, it will shock the learner. They can't see each other, but they can hear each other. And the way the experiment works like this. 
when the learner gives a wrong answer to a question, they get a shock. Um, and the person, the teacher, has to administer the shock. Now, the twist to this is that upon every consecutive wrong answer, the voltage goes up. And the max voltage you can give, I forget exactly, it's like 400 and something, but it will kill you. It's, it's, the point is that this type of voltage will kill you. And with each wrong answer, the shock increases. And with each wrong answer, the teacher hears the response of the learner screaming out. Now, the professor who started this experiment was Jewish, and he was reflecting upon some of the excuses given by Nazis in post-World War II Germany, particularly at the Nuremberg trials, where Nazis were on trial for human atrocities. And one of the excuses that Nazis gave again and again and again was, I didn't like what I was doing, but I was just following orders. And so, there's, a, there's the authority figure. He's got the lab coat on, and he's the expert, and he just tells you, continue with the experiment, continue with the experiment. And what they found was that um, someone would get a couple questions right, and then they get one wrong, and a person would easily be able to, to shock them once. And the person on the other end just kind of shouts, but it's no big deal. But with every consecutive wrong answer, the screams would become filled with more and more agony. Now, Milgram, the person conducting the experiment, asked um, a few hundred different other professional psychologists. Uh, he surveyed them and said, how many people of the population do you think will be able to actually administer um, the max amount of voltage and either you know, put someone in extreme torturous agony or kill them? How many people can go that far? And the professional psychologists of the day came up with less than 1% of the population would be able to do that. What the survey showed was that, the, what the experiment showed was that the majority of human beings were able to take the experiment to torturous levels or the levels of death, so as long as there is an authority figure in, figure in the room telling them, proceed with the experiment, continue with the experiment. And so... Uh, screams would get louder. They actually told the person, you can hear him on the other end, saying, I have a heart condition. I don't want any more of this. I'm out of this. I didn't know it was going to hurt this bad. And they're screaming in agony. And the person, the teacher, isn't just going along with it for fun. They're turning back to the authority figure and saying, I didn't sign up for this. This, this, this person's in agony. I think they're in the pain. Continue with the experiment. We got to get the results. And the vast majority of people were able to take it up to the lethal doses or at least to the point of torturous agony. Uh, the experiment has been redone a couple times. There was a TV show on the BBC that, that tried to replicate it, uh, and they came up with similar results as well, and you can actually watch it on YouTube. Um, the other experiment, another controversial one that there's all kinds of debate around, but again, even if there's just a sliver of truth in here, it, it should be terrifying, and that's the Stanford pr Prison Experiment of 1971. Again, to make a long story short, they got a bunch of dudes and put them in, in like an artificial prison system and they made half of them guards and half of them prison uh, inmates. And it was just basically to see is how do those in power treat, treat the prisoners who, who don't have power? And it was just gonna last for two weeks. By day two, many of the guards were, were exhibiting uh, abusive behavior to the prisoners. And on day six, a third of them, according to the person conducting the research, on day six, a third of them were already participating in genuinely sadistic behavior and abuse to the prisoners. And so it was called off. By the way, it was called off primarily because the one running the experiment, his girlfriend, who had later become his wife, told him this is immoral and wrong. So it was one woman in, in, in the womb actually thinking straight. And the guy probably just, I don't know the story, I'm not educated enough on it, but men typically will change their opinions about things if the girl they like has something to say about it. So he, he, here's, here's the thing. As we always act, to like, act like, we would be different. We would, would not do these things. But the story that history tells us is again and again and again, normal human beings have the propensity, the inclination, and it's in them with the potential to do incredible evil and just atrocious, unthinkable things. Going back to the World War II example, you read about Bonhoeffer. He's, he's the hero. He stood up against 
um, the bad guys in the empire. Again, there, there were, he signed a document in 1935, a, a document that a theologian, another guy who stood up named Karl Barth wrote, and in the document they basically said that the church will not be the servant of the state, and the head of the church is Christ, not the Fuhrer. 20% of pastors and churches agreed to that. 80% didn't. 80% of churches pastors were not a part of the confessing church, the resistance against Hitler. But when we read these stories, we're like, oh, yeah, I'd be different. I'd be the hero in this. I'd be morally virtuous and upright. I'd be like Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Come on. Come on. You're not like Bonhoeffer. You're not even like Bonhoeffer in a culture where it's easy to be loving and self-sacrificial. What gives you the right to think when evil and tyranny and hell on earth is unleashed that you're going to be able to look that in the eye and then have the moral fortitude and backbone and make the right decision? We can't even be Bonhoeffers in this society. We don't even live sacrificially and loving when it's easy to. And we're just going to look Hitler and Nazi Germany in the eye and have the moral backbone to do something about it? No, we're, we're kidding ourselves. We always think we're special. We always think we're unique. This is why we love superhero movies. Because <laughs> we vicariously live through like these guys and we want to be like them and we're, we're like them. No. History tells us we're not. History tells the story of human beings making brothers enemies and then killing each other. The same seeds that get planted in the human heart of murder, I mean of hate and anger, they grow. And in the right context, circumstance, environment, human beings again and again and again prove themselves capable of incredible evil. Now, John is going to make a massive pivot here, and this is incredibly important. It's incredibly profound, but more important than that, I think it's practical. John is going to, I believe, give us the secret to developing the character that enables us one day in the future, if we were in an evil circumstance, to do right. John says this, By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So the, the, the first thing John says is, uh, right after this idea, if, if you hate your murderer, he says this, you know what love is? It's true love looks like the love Christ displayed. It's laying down your life. Everything in you on a biological level, you're wired to survive. And when you're forced to survive, you'd be surprised the types of things that you will do. The love of Christ says loving human being trumps your desire to survive. The greatest act of love is being able to lay down your life for another human being. But make no mistake about it. As human beings, we jump to this. I, I'd, I'd want to be able to lay down my life for those I love. And John almost like anticipates that. Oh, you th oh it's like, oh, you're, you're special and unique. You're going to be one of the rare people that can lay down their life for someone Okay, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need you, and you close your heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Before you go on to display the ultimate act of love, before you become Dietrich Bonhoeffer fighting Hitler in World War II, there's a question in the present. When you see people in need, are you able to give to them? Before you can lay down your life, can you lay down your bread? Because if you can't lay down your bread, you can't use your money and time to do right in this world, you're never going to look evil in the eye and be Bonhoeffer. You're kidding yourself. You think you're special and unique. You're not. So John is incredibly practical here. And this is the beauty of, of the Christian teaching on this is these small acts of giving of your money or your time or your resources to help someone in need, those things have ultimate value and ultimate meaning. They're not just like little nice things that you do because you're a Christian. When you care for someone in need, 
You are not just caring for another human being in need. You are caring for a human being made in the image of Almighty God. And that means every deed, every action, every word spoken is of immense and infinite value because you're doing it to someone made in the image of Almighty God. When you give to someone, when you let someone cry on your shoulder, when you spend time with someone, when you go out of your way to help somebody, you are doing it to people that aren't just ordinary people. C.S. Lewis would say that. You, you never run into another ordinary human being. Everyone's made in the image of God. They're of infinite value. Christ died for them. Everything is infused with this holy, sacred meaning. And John is going, if you don't do that, the love of God does not abide in you. Don't we dare think for a moment that we're so morally awesome, we're such good people, that we would be Dietrich Bonhoeffers, that we would be like Jesus, laying down our life for the brethren, when we don't even do the simple task God puts before us on a daily basis. You, you be faithful in those small things, then you might be a part of the 20% of confessing Christians that stood up against Hitler. But you don't just get that magical moral fortitude overnight. It takes character building. By the way, something our culture has completely lost. Character building. With every passing day, desiring to look more and more like Christ. Letting the old man die, the sinful flesh die. Character building, virtue. These things matter. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children... Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. The Bible often gives us two paths to choose from. Uh, Jesus does it in the Sermon on the Mount. There's the wise man who builds his house upon the rock, and there's the foolish man who builds his house upon the sand. John says you either love or hate, you either abide in him or you don't, you either love or you're a murderer. And it says like these two, two paths you always have to choose from. And yes, in one sense, that is an exaggerated rhetorical way of communicating, hey, you're either for Christ or not. But you better believe that when you choose the path of bitterness and hate, you have no idea where that can lead. You just don't know. There's always these, these two paths. Human beings do some crazy things. There's a, a trailer for a movie I saw. It's a horror, horror movie. Um, called It Comes at Night, right? Anyone know? Hollister Church, a couple people saw it already. Is that, that's right, is it, it Comes at Night? And at the end of the trailer, it says, fear makes men monsters. I go, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, scarcity of resources makes men monsters. The desire to survive in horrible situations makes men monsters. That's one of the things I, I, I like about horror movies. Um, I know it's always, I said that at Hollister, and I was like, you like horror movies? Uh, good ones, and they, there's only about one every three or four years. I, I, I don't watch, I'm, I have two little kids, so the last movie I saw was the original Ben-Hur in theaters. Um, so you get, you get kids, and you just never watch movies or go to the theaters anymore. Um, I saw Ben-Hur and the original Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston. It was the last time I was at a movie theater. Um, but what a good horror movie does, and they're very rare, is they uh, bring to the forefront of our like, conscience something that our culture has told us to, to, to suppress and deny. The best example of this was The Exorcist. Uh, the Exorcist was like terrifying people. I, I, before people accuse me of lying, uh, I, I actually didn't watch The Exorcist when I was a little, little kid. I wasn't, I wasn't alive yet. Um, but whenever I talk about old movies, someone after church will come up and be like, I, uh, you, you're confused. You know, but I, like, there's all kinds of stuff online. You can read about it. And people, and if you were there for it, uh, people were like genuinely terrified, right? Like people were scared. And it was because like culturally we've been told there is, there is no boogeyman. There is no evil behind the shadows. The, the physical material world is all there is. There is no Satan. That's just superstitious nonsense. But like deep in the human like psyche is this idea that 
there is, there definitely is demons and, and weird stuff going on in the world. And all of a sudden, a major Hollywood picture brought that to the front and everyone was like, no, I am scared of that. But I thought you don't believe in that. I thought you're a modern mind that don't believe. No, that was scary. <laughs> and you had, you had full-grown adults, like some of you remember. You were, you were old enough. When did it come out? What year? Anyone know? Give or take? Late 70s, right? Um, late 70s, early 80s. Um, some of you remember you were old enough then, like you were a full-grown adult. And when you got home, you know, locking the door and trying to tell yourself, but it's a demon, it can go through the door. How do I fight this? Oh my gosh. Because what it did was it kind of brought to the front of your brain something that like, You've, you've completely buried and not thinking. A culture said, you don't talk. We're smarter than that. We're modern minds. We don't believe in this stuff. And then all of a sudden, what the horror movie does is like, oh my gosh, I kind of do still believe in this stuff. It was scary. It was terrifying. Um, and the, the trailer to that movie, it's probably a hor- horrible movie. Do not go and take this like an endorsement of some horror movie. They're most of the time really bad and not worth watching. But that line... There's a reason why they had that line in there, fear turns men into monsters. There's a cultural resonance with that. And so the Bible says there's these two paths, and you, you're, you're going to have to choose which one you're going to walk on. And if you allow yourself to walk on the crooked road rather than the straight and narrow, if you allow these seeds in your heart to take root, they will grow up into a plant. They will grow up into a tree. And they, they will continue, and they will get you to do evil. Now, I, I don't believe, by the way, that um, you give that time long enough and people in this room are going to become, become murderers. Uh, again, we, it, it doesn't work that simply. But I can tell you, there's people in this room who have watered and cultivated and gave fertilizer to these seeds in their life for decades. And there's some of you in this room walking around with so much bitterness, regret, and hatred towards other human beings in your heart that it wreaks havoc on your soul. In a room this size, I know there are some of you who desire to be reconciled to family members, but you've been at odds so long that you can't even begin to unravel that knot. And when you think about it, you have a moment of forgiveness where you want to reach out, and then you start thinking about all the times they wronged you or whatever, and then your blood's boiling again. I mean, how bizarre is that? There are people in this room who you desire to be reconciled to a loved one, but you can't get yourself to do it. This is how these things work. I know people who are in the last years of their life, and they are old and bitter and angry at the world, angry at God, angry at everybody, because they let these things grow in their heart for decades. So you have to picture your heart as like an open field with soil. And uh, there's seeds that get dropped in those, and sometimes there's seeds of anger, resentment, or hatred, or fill in anything, unforgiveness, whatever it is in there. And if you choose to walk down that path of anger and hate, you continue to let those things develop. And they'll manifest in a number of ways. By the way, this is true of anything not of anything, but of most sins. You have a, a coworker who, you, who you, you're attracted to. You're married, but you're attracted to a coworker, and and you know you tell yourself, "I'll I'll never have an affair. I'll I'll never I'll never. I love my wife. I love this." But but you allow yourself to to to, to entertain the thoughts and stay longer after work, and maybe you start to begin to exchange hugs now and then and receive some type of affirmation. And all the while, people usually don't wake up and say, I'm going to have an affair. It's you allowing that seed to grow day after day, year after years. And believe me, and I know there's tons of people in this room who have had those things happen to them and have done those things. By God's grace, there's forgiveness in the room. But let me tell you, people who would swear to God they would never do something find themselves doing the very thing they swore they would never do. That's how it works. So what I'm going to ask you to do is to picture your heart as that field. And uh, I want you to seriously think about 
the seeds that are growing in there. And I want you to identify where there's unforgiveness, where there's hatred, where there's hurt, where there's anger. And I want you to articulate them to yourselves in your head. Um, I don't by any means think you hear a sermon and just do a magical prayer at the end and then all of a sudden the, 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 the fear and anger and hatred you have in your heart is just mirac- miraculously done away with. Sometimes God does it, but most of the time it's a long, long process. So by no means, don't take this as we're gonna pray and we're just gonna banish all the, we're gonna put roundup on everything and I'll be good. It doesn't work that way. But a massive and monumental first step is actually acknowledging where those things are at, naming them, owning up to the fact that you have hatred towards this person or unforgiveness towards resentment towards this person. And then a second step is um, beginning to work through that, confess that to other people. You can talk about it in your small group, actually getting it out and sharing that emotional just gunk it's a, a good step. If you're not in a small group, getting in one or talking to uh, someone who you love and trust that you can share it. Maybe some of you are actually at the point where you can call up the person and begin reconciliation right away. For some of you, you need counseling. You need professional counseling. This is going to be a long journey because that hatred, that resentment's been there a long time and you need someone that knows what they're doing to help you walk through that. I don't know what the next step is. For some of you, when we, when we close, we'll have prayer people up here. Your first step is just going up and praying and confessing these things. But you've got to know wh- where they're at in your heart, and you've got to be able to name them and articulate them. And you've got to be able to say, God, I don't, I don't want these things. I want to walk in love. I don't want these in my life anymore. The story of Cain and Abel is much like the story of Bonhoeffer. Uh, when we go to the story of Bonhoeffer, we immediately pretend we are Bonhoeffer and that we would be the morally upright person doing the right thing. And when we read the Cain and Abel story, most of us, by default, identify with Abel. When really the truth is we need to identify with Cain. You better believe we all brought the unacceptable sacrifice to God. And you better believe when we found out that we were guilty, we wanted to kill. The story of Cain and Abel is the story of humanity. It's the story of you and I. But more importantly, the story of Cain and Abel is the story of Jesus. Because we're not Abel in this story. We're Cain, and Jesus is Abel. Jesus is the innocent son who makes the acceptable sacrifice to God the Father and in turn is murdered for it. And his blood soaks up the ground, but rather than cry out for vengeance, his blood ensures forgiveness. The sacrifice made by the innocent son, the truly innocent one, provides forgiveness by his blood. Most people, when they read the Canaan Angel story, in there and think, um, God goes about and just punishes Cain. End of story. That, That misses the entire point. Cain gets this rebuke and this warning, but the whole point of the Cain and Abel story at the end is to clearly put on display that although Cain was a murderer and deserved death, God showed him mercy. He gave him grace, and he gave him provision. And that's why all these stories in the Old Testament are like many microcosms of the gospel. I am Cain. I deserve death. But the truly innocent son made a sacrifice to God and it was accepted. And God in turn, rather than killing me, shows me mercy, grace, and forgiveness. And when you let that work in your life, you begin to understand what the gospel is all about. You begin to understand what forgiveness is all about. And you begin to understand what the love of God is all about. And then you can say, Lord, I don't want to walk down the path of Cain. I don't want to walk down the path of hatred and anger. Help me today in the present to do the small things that ultimately will build my character to the point where then I might be able to do the right thing when evil is knocking at the door. Build the character now. I'm going to pray, and I want everyone to, to think about those, those thoughts of, of hatred or unforgiveness or bitterness, whatever they are, and I want you to, to talk, talk to God about it throughout the day. Say, God, these are them. I need you because I can't, I still hate this person. I can't, I can't forgive them. And God, I need you to show me what my next step is. 
What do you want me to do next? Naming them and articulating them is not the answer, but it's a massive and monumental step for some of you. Because human beings have like an incredible ability to be in absolute denial of the obvious. So we got, we got to acknowledge them before God. There'll be people up here, our, our prayer team, that if you just want to pray about or you just want to n- confess it for the first time, they're there. I encourage you to get in a small group. If you're in one, talk. Say, hey, before we start, I got some things I just got to blur about. I just got to get this out of me. For some of you, you, you may need to get into some professional counseling because the wounds are so deep and it's going to be a long journey because there's a lot of hurt wound up in that. Let's pray. Father God, I ask you that, uh, that your spirit would come upon people in this room, especially the ones who, who, who harbor deep anger and hatred. Lord, minister to them in these moments. Remind them uh, that you can remove those seeds. It may happen instantaneously. It may happen over the next several years, but you can come alongside of them and help them. And I pray that they wouldn't feel guilt for having those feelings, that they would know that by your blood, There is not judgment, but no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we ask you to be gracious to us and reveal truth to us, speak to us. And I pray that, and I thank you that that your death has has given a way to ensure grace and forgiveness. We thank you, Lord, Lord, today. We give you thanks. It is the will of God that we would be grateful. And so we are grateful today. We celebrate your resurrection and victory over Satan, sin, and death today. We love you, Lord. Increase our love for you and our love for other people, the brothers and sisters in this church and the human beings of this world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You guys have a wonderful day wrestling with some of the most painful stuff possible.